What's up, everyone? Welcome to Desolation Wales, Dan and Eighth. Desolation Wales, change that name. Desolation Radio. <laughs> it's been a while, hasn't it? This is sort of an impromptu, um, impromptu episode, isn't it? Because we were like, well, it's just an improv episode. We say on the uh, we say on the Twitter thing. Well, we started off being a weekly a weekly podcast, and that just became completely unsustainable because we got famous just, pretty much, didn't we? And just we keep peaked up. quite yeah quite soon, and then sort of we flatlined. We've got I literally flatlined, didn't I? We've got loyal enough followers that we now just do in every six months. Every nine months, maybe tops. Um, so we thought stand on the balcony and speak to the people. We thought we'd do an episode, um, but in the meantime, Nate, let's just do a, a very quick, uh, very brief roundup of what's been happening uh, in the news in Wales. Has anything been happening in your end? No, nothing. In your life? Uh, small things. Small, th- uh, such as hamster died. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, Wasn't it called? What was it Bashar? Al Assad, because it was a Syrian hamster. Big ham. I've immortalised him. Well, my partner mortalised him on a key, key ring, though. Just carrying around a dead hamster? No, no, I buried the hamster. Oh, really. the photo. Yeah, it was a grim affair, to be honest. I'm sorry, man. I remember burying, well, when my, we, I don't know if we've talked about this on previous shows, but when my hamster, William, died. Um, William? Yeah. It's a very, like, kind of formal name for Well, hamster, you know, it's it? a, yeah, it's William, a lot of respect e- to William, William Evans. Um, <laughs> but when he died, like, we were all traumatised, and then we, we rung the vet, and my mum's, uh, and the vet said, well, sometimes they're just hibernating. So they said, well, just if pretending, you, they? so if you put it in the oven, so we put it in the oven, like just stretched it out on a baking tray and it was like, it, and it started breathing again, mm. but then it was, it was actually Did dead. You, in other related hamster news, there was this girl who uh, phoned up a vet, like my hamster hasn't moved for three days, hasn't eaten or like drunk, just took it to the vet and they were like, um, oh, that's weird, it's all right now that had transpired before that the hamster had escaped and they found it in the kitchen, but it had eaten a magnet, so she stuck to the side of the cage. <laughs> <laughs> so it couldn't move. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Sorry. Um, the, okay, a couple of things that happened. I mean, we, obviously we are an anti-government, you know, libertarian, don't tread on me, militia supporting podcast. Um, uh, but when, you know, on, it's probably the first thing that Welsh government has sort of ever done that I've approved of, and that was like nixing the Circuit of Wales deal, which I thought was really good so well done but then <laughs> straight away afterwards Ken Skates has said well don't worry we'll still be giving Ebervale a hundred million uh, pound business park so it's like a so, so I realised recently which annoyed me as you know with um, FDI's this uh, Welsh government has never tried to get Nintendo to set up here mm, it's going oh that was the other thing so that was the other thing Ken Skates said he said Wales is still punching above its weight in attracting foreign direct investment. So if you listen to any of our previous podcasts, you realise that attracting, continually attracting foreign direct investment in a race to the bottom, sort of come to Wales because you don't have to pay our workers very much. Um, Compete in China. Is really not the way to sort of grow the Welsh economy. So plug, you know, we're plugging, go and listen to our other previous economics episodes with uh, Tegid, Calvin and Mark. Um, anyway, I forgot what we're doing. Um, right. So today we're going to be talking about, drumroll, the Welsh language again. And the reason we're talking about the Welsh language is because in a previous podcast we talked about the Welsh language um, and that was actually prompted by, if you recall, this is how long ago it was, by a row around the Eisteddfod and this sort of pseudo-rage that had been generated when the Western Mail sort of decided to say, oh, the the Eisteddfod snub the Wales football team because he didn't invite them to their stead or whatever. And what we discussed in that podcast, it was manufactured outrage designed to sort of create a storm, sort of divide Welsh speakers, you know, non-Welsh speakers. And we noticed how periodically the press seemed to do this, like, because it's always, 
it's a touchy subject in Wales, let's face it. Um, but we thought we'd solved it. We thought we'd established. We raised his head again. We, we, we thought we thought we'd really sort of given a good historical overview of the you know the sort of historical origins of anti-Welsh language bigotry. You know the treason of the blue books and things like that. Um, and and now you know sort of we actually you know everything we said has come to pass. Unfortunately, though, that acted as a template for everyone else, didn't they? So they heard what we said and acted against it. Became, yeah. Um, made people bigoted. It did. Um, commanded supporters are listening and then they just hated the language straight after. But um, what's happened basically is that exactly the same thing has happened. You know, so anti-Welsh language bigotry has reared its head. Um, first in Tlangenech, um in West Wales, there's a Ferrari about a Welsh language school. Then the Guardian sort of chimed in, as they do, sort of... Uh, with just They've a, got lots of Welsh correspondence. Nonsensical, well, like probably the worst article I've ever read in any newspaper ever, which is sort of... So anyway, enough of that rambling introduction. We're delighted to be joined today by a very special guest, Dr Hugh Williams, who is a lecturer in philosophy in the Cardiff University School of Philosophy. Welcome, Hugh. Evening. And uh, he's also sitting here with a bike helmet on his head because <laughs> uh, he walks, he just wears that around. Just... Uh, <laughs> He took off his styrofoam, didn't he? It's because I'm speaking about the Welsh language. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So who was not as well as having done, you know, written some. I mean, if you follow the show I'm sh- or you listen to it, I'm sure you probably read stuff that he was written, which is really fantastic work on Welsh language education. Really amazing sort of refutations of this. Yeah, you know, let's face it, it's anti-Welsh language bigotry, and he's he's spoken about the history of where that comes from. Um, and we're delighted to have him on the show. So welcome, Hugh. Big round of applause. How are you? Delighted to be here. Delighted to be here. Yeah. So it's, it's overdue. We were talking of getting you on the show back, way back when we first started. Yeah, things agree. get in the way, you know, life. Couldn't agree to A new agree. baby daughter, that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, all right, so why, I mean, you've written about Slangenic, but you've, you've written about that in Welsh, haven't you? Yeah, I've written a number of bits and bobs over the past year or so. I mean, a lot of it, to be honest, is sort of born from personal experience. So in terms of what I do academically, I'm, I guess political philosophy is what I'm interested in. I've written stuff on global justice and social justice, this kind of thing, on a more abstract plane, if you like. But um, yeah, I got involved with a campaign for a Welsh medium school in my my part of Cardiff, Grangetown in South Cardiff. And yeah, I mean, all in all, it was a pretty testing three years, I'd say, from, from start to finish. And I guess in a way I had the consolation of philosophy, that's to say when I was, you know, awake at two o'clock in the morning, stressing about this, that and the other, or just being basically angry. It was kind of, uh, you know, therapeutic to try and think about it in a, in a more... Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, uh, so yeah, a lot of the stuff that I've written about is tried to really bring together that personal experience, which obviously chimes with what's happened in Llangenech, sort of also speaks to some of the stuff that we see in the press from time to time and, you know, try to bring some of the insights of uh, what I've studied and written about as a, as a philosopher into the whole discussion. So, uh, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, what's amazing is that you've got to just keep on making these arguments, I think. I mean, you can go back to literature in the 60s, 70s and you were... Uh, uh, bigging up a piece of uh, literature from uh, 1979 the other day, which was, what was the, it, the New Welsh the, Socialist Republic. Yeah, it was by the Welsh Socialist Republican Movement, and it was called Socialism for the Welsh People by Garth uh, Miles, Garth Miles um, and Robert Griffiths. Yeah. Uh, Rob Griffiths. Is that the pamphlet? Yeah, the, the, the pamphlet. That's so, am- I read that on the train, it's amazing. Um, Rob Griffiths is probably better known for being the General Secretary of the Communist Party of Great Britain, but 
I mean, he was a former Plaid Cymru staffer, mm. and we'll be hopefully going to be doing an episode on this uh, pamphlet. Um, yeah, the, I was just making the point that uh, some of the arguments in there about the Welsh language were very similar to the sort of stuff we're still talking about now. So it's it is quite. Um, well, it's not that amazing, but you know, history, it is history repeating, isn't it? There's, um, well, it was, I mean, one of your responses on Twitter to this, uh, the Guardian article, I think you, you said something like, I, I can't believe we have to do to do this again, to dredge this up again, to make this argument again. And as you said, it, I mean, fair play to you, but, but, but fair play yeah. to, I mean, any, but to any Welsh, I mean, to Welsh, any Welsh language campaigners, I mean, it's, it must be, uh, what do they call it, like a Sisyphean ordeal or whatever, just constantly battling against this, common sense way of thinking and it must be absolutely exhausting I don't speak Welsh um, and I find it immensely depressing the whole sort of when yeah. it re- periodically rears its head so I can't imagine what it must be like for yeah, people yeah. like yourself who not only speak the language the first language but you know have to defend have to defend it in, in so many ways so if we can just briefly go back to Tlangenic basically I'm sure most people following the show know what happened in Tlangenic but Tlangenic is a small um sort of town just outside Llanelli and it got catapulted into sort of the Welsh sort of national even the national media I guess as in British media um, because of a furore because the the town council decided there to well they're going to shut off the dual the dual stream yeah. and make the Welsh prim- the primary school Welsh medium only and what and local parents allegedly in cahoots with certain prominent members of the local Labour Party um, led a, you know, quote-unquote, non-political concerned parents group that were basically kicking off saying that, you know, English-language kids are being discriminated against. Um, and what had actually happened was that the school had agreed that any child at the moment that was studying through the medium of the English language would be allowed to finish their education and then they would have to, you know, go to the secondary school, was it three miles down the road? Um, 1.6, I think. Yeah, and... 1.6? 1.6. So, 1. 6. so there was a huge, huge... I can see their argument now. There was a huge, huge row about this. So there was this assumption that um, essentially all the common-sense power relations in Wales have been sort of inverted and turned on their head, this idea that, you know, you know, English kids have been discriminated against, um, English, English-speaking kids have been discriminated against, uh, things like that. Um, some pretty horrible... I mean, some pretty horrible rhetoric was used. There was all these, like... St- stuff flying around Twitter people would be sort of fly posting these like things saying like don't let Plaid Cymru kick out um, English speaking children and things like that uh, which suggested sort of an overly political uh, angle to it Um, as some of the parents more prominent and vocal parents involved were sort of members of the Labour Party then it sort of really spiralled out of control Neil Hamilton of UKIP got involved um some of the parents who had been you know, just concerned parents had been found to be sharing Britain First memes and EDL stuff on Facebook. Um, and it just, the whole thing was really, really horrible. And it sort of has driven, clearly driven some sort of wedge in the community. But um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what hap- what went on and what you think the sort of ramifications Yeah, I mean, have been. it was... It was uh... Yeah, pretty depressing viewing that from... Because uh, you're local, almost. Well, my, my wife is definitely uh, pretty much local. She's from Cumgwens. I think I'm a bit further up, you know. It's all West Wales to people. In yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. Past Swansea is just... It's, it's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's robust. 
heart of darkness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Colonel Kirk. <laughs> I think what's interesting is the sort of the national dynamic. And I mean, it was what occurred there that spurred me to write a sort of lengthy article in, in English for Open Democracy because you could see the parallels with what had happened in our situation in, in Grangetown. And I guess you've got to put it within the context of Welsh language, education policy more generally. Especially in this last year, things have been ramped up because the government have made this commitment to the notion of you know, doubling the amount of speakers by 2050. Um, a million speakers is the sort of uh, hashtag and all that. And so, in a way, that hasn't really changed what was the stated aim anyway, which was trying to incrementally increase the amount of Welsh medium schools or places available for Welsh medium education across Wales. Um, but it has perhaps, you know, provided that extra layer of uh, debate and, and tension. And I should probably also add, in terms of background, I'm a Labour Party member, and so I view Ooh. the whole thing... <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a step back here, so put my helmet back on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, before the show started? <laughs> <laughs> but it is crucial in terms of the story because it gave me a... Birds, a worms eye view rather of you know the internal dynamics of what goes on. Labour being the worms. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so you know what essentially happened with us was that you had a few local uh, personalities, shall we say, who were against the expansion or the creation of a Welsh medium school in our part of the city, and then at assembly level and also in terms of the MP, um, we felt that they could have been more support, especially considering that this was about the realisation of a national policy, especially in Grangetown, you know, Big Town, massive multicultural area. There's a specific um, caveat or reference in the Welsh language strategy about ensuring that these sorts of communities are given the opportunity. And you could see that dynamic playing out again in, in Llangenech, that you had obviously what was a difficult situation. I mean, there are always going to be disagreements, arguments around these sorts of things. But it was within the context of this uh, larger sort of um, aspiration, really, of increasing Welsh medium spaces, especially in Carmarthenshire, which is, you know, one of the traditional heartlands. You've actually got the biggest sort of um, uh, number of Welsh speakers in that area of, of Wales, within 50 miles of mm. Swansea. That's where the real, you know, contrary perhaps to the perception that it's all in North Wales, you've got places like Cungwendraith and Valley, with his massive Welsh-speaking yeah. communities. So really, in a sense, at council level, county council level, it was about trying to push back against the decrease in percentage of Welsh speakers so in the this, area. So this is back in Llangenech, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and so Llangenech was a sort of test case because it was the first school that was going to be changed from a dual stream to Welsh medium education, or you know, what effectively is bilingual education because you have both Welsh and English. I think... And, that, and, and, and you know, the issue with... The whole situation is this is the first school where this has sort of happened and there's meant to be reforms over time in Carmarthenshire where there are more dual stream schools that are meant to turn into Welsh medium schools and presumably there's going to be, you know, other arguments, other debates and it's a little bit scary and a little de bit depressing that it's sort of kicked off with this particular situation in, in Llangenich. A few, I want to make a few points of clarification just for people who aren't familiar with, you know, the Welsh, Welsh language education. Um, but also it should be said, as you just said, that 
This, although it did become political on the ground, this is a Labour-led council decision on the Welsh language, wasn't it, in Llangenna, in Carmarthenshire County Council? Um, I, I think it was being implemented by Plaid, but it had cross-party support. The general That's right, the <coughs> Labour councillors had signed off on it. So yeah, it was like... The, the general policy of increasing... Welsh so the policy of increasing the Welsh medium spaces was in line with the Welsh government policy of creating yeah. a million speakers, right? What you just said there, bilingual versus dual stream, could you just explain to people what, firstly, what dual stream education is? Yeah, so dual stream, which is what you have in schools like Llangenech up until now, is when you have effectively two classes in each year, and one class will receive their education pretty much English only, perhaps with a little bit of Welsh as they move through the school, and then the Welsh medium stream is primarily Welsh medium education, although in effect by the time you get into year five, six, when the kids are sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, increasingly they'll bring English into the into the uh, curriculum. But it's that notion of having a school where you've got two different streams, one primarily English, one primarily Welsh. So is it was it a question of efficiency of like, you know, moving you know, people were saying that you know moving the dual the English medium kids to the English medium comp or yeah. Um, I mean, that, because that's another thing. I think it, it could be about the actual political economy of the school. It's presumably there's two loads of staff, and yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not okay is it with all the details, but my presumption would be that when you've got a policy where you're explicitly trying to increase Welsh medium spaces, you look at the easy gains in a way. Yeah. And internationally, there are a lot of English medium schools. Um, perhaps two or three Welsh medium schools and then Llangenech which is dual stream Llangenech traditionally is quite a Welsh speaking village it's on the sort of outskirts of Llanelli so not perhaps as anglicised as part of the town itself and so looking at that I imagine in terms of driving a policy through you're thinking well you know this is a fairly Welsh speaking sort of part of Carmarthenshire has been traditionally you'd think there'd be general support for the idea of turning it into a largely Welsh medium school um, and there won't be too much opposition if we go about this properly and do the consultation professionally and we ensure that we have parents on board Definitely this should be an e- <laughs> yeah it should be a, it should be an easy gain so that I imagine is what the thinking was behind it um, but it all sort of those anti-English language bigots uh, hadn't inca- hadn't uh, considered uh, Guy Robert Jones are they like the one man uh, defender of the English language yeah, um, yeah. could you please expand <clears throat> then you know one of the issues that came up at Tlangenech and came up in Grangetown, but this issue of, you know, Welsh medium education. Mm. And a lot of people have been at pains on social media to say, well, Welsh medium education is bilingual education. So can you yeah. expand on what the reality of it is? Because, yeah. you know, we didn't, Nathan and I didn't go through the Welsh medium no. education system, so it might I mean, help. I think part of this has come from that Guardian piece, which, in the way it was put together, it's suggested that Welsh medium education means you don't have any English. <laughs> I mean, it was suggested such that a couple of days later, somebody wrote into The Guardian to say, I cannot believe that kids in Wales are being denied the English language. Yeah, incredible. Um, and so part of it is responding to that sort of fallacy. I think part of it is actually um, that it's dawning on those of us who are campaigning in favour of Welsh media education that actually, to all intents and purposes, it is bilingual and actually it's not just about teaching kids through Welsh but it's about ensuring that by the time they're 11 that they have equal capacity in both languages 
Uh, I mean, I whilst myself in, in school and, you know, thinking back, I don't remember it because obviously you go into nursery when you're three. Yeah. As an English-speaking kid and then by the time you're five or six, you're pretty much conversant in, in Welsh. But obviously by the time you get to seven, eight, nine, when you've been through that period of immersion where it's just Welsh, because everybody knows the best way to learn a language is when you're a young kid and you're just thrown in at the deep end, as it were, and that Welsh or whatever language is spoken around you all the time. By the time you get to seven, eight, nine, ten, you get elements of English in the curriculum. You start to develop those skills as well, you know, reading, writing in English language as well. So that, I think, is why there's more of an emphasis now on saying, look, Welsh medium education is possibly a misnomer because, yeah. in effect, what you're aiming at is a thoroughgoing bilingual education. It's just that because of the fact that you have some kids coming in with no Welsh at all, you need to ensure that those early years in particular are Welsh only. Mm. And then it's perhaps by the end of the school um, experience, it's perhaps the predominant language. One of the most insane things about this is um, even if, I mean, if you've ever read anything like the Welsh language or any sort of language acquisition, like even if, let's say hypothetically, kids go into a Welsh medium school and there's English is banned, because of the fact that we're in the most English, you know, we're in mm. Wales, we're in, we're in the UK where every single thing is in English, like all the media is in English, like it, you cannot escape the English language, like it, it would be impossible for a child to not acquire the English language. Yeah. I mean, especially given the fact that, that, that they've got English, the English language at home. Yeah. So that, I mean, it, as you said, the people were saying that those articles and in, in letters into the Guardian were so like, just unbelievably stupid and unbelievably <laughs> just in defiance of all sort of lo- logic and common sense. It was, it's almost, as you said, it's just think, I can't believe I'm actually just yeah. having to deal with it, but you know, here we are. So got that, an episode out of it at least. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the main thing. Like, um, so that, all right, so that's what we happened. We were behind there, weren't we? So that's yeah. what happened in Tanganyik. It sort of spiraled out of control. Um, and then instantly, as you said, um, it really paralleled your own experience in Greenstown. So, hmm. Why don't we talk a bit more now about Grangetown? Like, I mean, you have basically been campaigning for Welsh language education in Grangetown for the past, what, three, four years? Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this article that we're going to tweet off and put on Facebook off the, the Desolation Radio account is really amazing. It details, like, sort of the struggles that Hugh faced. Um, so do you mind chatting again through the beginning? Uh, for, well, yeah, yeah. The beginning so I think it was way back in the... Uh, summer of 2013 and essentially Cardiff Council had been given grant or money had been earmarked as part of what's called the 21st Century Schools Programme mm. um, run by central government Yeah. and Leighton Andrews had signed off on the idea that there'd be a Welsh medium school for Grangetown bear in mind now that Grangetown has a population of about 18,000 you've got Boot Town next door 10,000 not Welsh medium school in sight. I think there's probably eight or nine schools in the area. Yeah. Parents from Booktown had been uh, putting down false addresses or addresses of friends in the Vale so they could get their kids into the Welsh medium school in Penarth. Right. So, you know, it was very much a situation where there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't equal opportunity, if, like, if you like, there wasn't a choice in terms yeah. of whether or not um, local kids was, could go to a Welsh medium school. And so the money was there. And then it transpired by the end of that summer that the council, or the cabinet rather, wanted to 
to divert those funds to a pre-existing Welsh school further west um, in the Leckwith Canton area, mm. uh, thereby basically denying people in Grangetown and Butetown a, a Welsh medium community school. And obviously there was a furore about this, um, and that's when I got involved with a public meeting that was held, and myself and a few other brave souls sort of committed to the to the uh, to the task. And yeah, I mean over time it was pretty depressing. I mean, especially as somebody who was brought up as a Labour person in Mid Wales, you're not really a Labour Party member there because you're interested in power or influence, to be honest, it's a yeah, bit of a backwater, but you know, you'd sort of hear these stories, these urban myths, if you like, about massively anti-Welsh Labour members, anti-Welsh Labour councillors, and of course there it was in front of my eyes, so I sort of felt, in a way, there was a duty to try and sure. get stuck in. <laughs> no, but yeah, challenge the... Yeah, yeah, and so over time, I mean, a lot of the your worst fears, fears really were sort of realised in terms of the motivation no, we don't want a Welsh medium school here because a load of applied voters are just going to, you know, make their homes here and they're going to vote us out. But that's, that's true. I mean, that, I think that's really important. There is actually like a demographic concern and this idea that, you know, Welsh language, you know, Welsh Welsh speakers just like give birth to applied supporters and, you know, and Grangetown is going to suddenly become this hive of... It's just, it's almost, it's unbelievable, really. The, the applied Maoist re-education centre. But they don't... It's, it, but. The, the nature, the problem with Welsh education in Welsh language education Wales is 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 that really at its core, isn't it? It's this assumption that the Welsh language is associated with applied, therefore Welsh language culture, including Welsh language schools, are almost like breeding grounds for Welsh nationalism. Almost in a way that parallels things like the Gaelic Athletic Association and the Irish language in Ireland. This mm-hmm. idea that they're hotbeds of they're not like cultural things in and of themselves that are neutral yeah. they're sort of ways of fostering sort of Irish na- Irish republicanism and things like that um, so that was the can you tell us a bit more about that sentiment please because I know I know people listening to it will probably be throwing their phones and things like that and... <laughs> yeah I mean it's as you just said really this this assumption that if you're Welsh speaking you're automatically going to be inclined to vote for Pike I mean I think it speaks to something you've talked about previously on on the podcast about really uh, the lack of our knowledge about each other in Wales yeah. because you know I'm from Ceredigion which has been a liberal stronghold if you had a Labour MP it is Plaid at the moment and a Plaid AM but and it's more you know voted in Labour MP for donkey's years so it's this false assumption as you say that if you're Welsh speaking you're automatically uh, a Plaid supporter and um, I think as well there's got to be a recognition that I'd have thought by now the majority of Welsh-speaking people in Wales probably learnt their Welsh through uh, the school system. So you've got people coming from a variety of different backgrounds, variety of different sort of upbringings. And so the assumption that speaking Welsh and thought implied go hand in hand um, certainly is not helpful in terms of trying to uh, push the uh, the uh, educational agenda. And you know, if you look at Greenstone. I think it's probably about 10% of the population is Welsh-speaking. I'd imagine a lot of those don't vote because they tend to be in their 20s. But, you know, Greenstown has had a fair amount of success for Blyde in terms of um, electoral politics, local politics recently. They had a... Is that Tariqa? That's it. But you can hardly associate that with the massive Welsh-speaking constituency there because it's a small part of the population. So, you know, there's a heck of a lot of other things going on there especially attempts by the local Plaid party really to engage with a lot of the different minorities. 
So yeah, it's it's one of those fallacies really that I think you need really need to sort of get beyond if you want to be able to have a proper fact-based, evidence-based, mature discussion about Welsh education. And that's my feeling generally about everything that happened in Llangenech, some of the arguments, spurious arguments that are put forward. You know, once you start putting a finger on it, or once you start to try and uh, break down what's being said, you discover that actually a lot of the stuff that's been spoken is is flannel, you know, and it, and it gets in the way of, as I say, what should be a mature conversation where we think about, well, what is the most constructive way of going about things? How do we do it by getting people on board? Because, you know, what we've discovered as well through the campaign in Grangetown and what perhaps people who are not Welsh-speaking, sorry, people who are Welsh-speaking forget is that, you know, for a lot of people, the Welsh language isn't a part of their lives. It's not something that even crosses their mind. And, you know, if you're campaigning or if you're pro-language, you've got to try and start by thinking about the position of somebody who knows nothing about it and that goes for you know the community in general but also parents i don't think it's uh, possible to put too much emphasis on you know what a big deal it is for parents who are not well speaking to make that choice and think you know what we're going to go for it interestingly enough in greenstown i think over time we won't have so many issues because a lot of the families there have two three languages anyway and so the notion of getting beyond that sort of monoglot state in which we live in is not such an issue there. But yeah, um, these are the sorts of arguments and issues I'd like for us to be talking about. But, you know, as I mentioned, when you got into meetings of the local Labour branch, it's not the sort of thing that has been discussed about the Welsh education and schooling. It was more realpolitik and, you know, prejudices that have built up over time, really. So this isn't... These are, pu- are these public meetings or are they branch meetings and people both? Branch meetings, really, um, which is where, you know, myself and a couple of other members were trying to push the local councillors into supporting or getting behind the, the initiative. Uh, a couple of those councillors were on the cabinet. I mean, really, the dynamic or the whole game changed for us when the Labour Party, which is notoriously split in Cardiff, elected a new leader, Phil Bale. Mm. I can't speak highly enough of him, really, in this particular context, and I think he's had a bit of a raw deal, to be honest, but, um, you know, he's not a Welsh-speaking guy, but he was just somebody who was sympathetic, was able to look at the thing in a, the situation in a more dispassionate way, and as soon as that changed, well, you know, I wouldn't say it was necessarily easy from then on in, because you still have certain obstacles in terms of the inner workings of council and council officers and so forth, but I think the key point there is, you know, you have an individual or a group of individuals who have certain prejudices or assumptions that causes a particular policy to fail. There's a change in personnel and a change of outlook and suddenly, you know, things can move on quite quite nicely and, and with minimum fuss. And I think, again, if you look at Llangenech, what's happened is you've had probably too many Labour councillors who've been willing to try and cash in politically on this and say things that are really not very helpful and not necessarily perhaps having the support from more senior politicians to say, you know, look, this is national policy. It's something that people generally are supportive of. We think it's a good thing. We should be getting on board and trying to move forward with this as smoothly as possible and, you know, assuage the doubts that some parents have. and. I think one key thing as well is assure people that just because you have a Welsh medium school in the area, 
it's not going to be like a colonization because I think that's what comes over as well and what came over in some of the chats I had was people have this fear that you know the Welsh speakers are coming they're going to shove Welsh down our throats and all this yeah and it's a lack of knowledge I suppose or experience of living somewhere like I did yeah um, around Aberystwyth North Ceredigion where you know Welsh although it's still a community language it's something you can avoid or you don't have to live through the language you don't have to you know have it as part of your everyday life to you know lead your existence and it strikes me sometimes that especially this part of the country which is more anglicized yeah. it does seem to be this fear that oh you know this is going to lead to major changes to my way of life what i can do and, and a lot of those fears are well almost all of them i think they're practically you know unsubstantiated so yeah like i say i think there just needs to be slightly more uh sensitive and perhaps uh, nuanced discussions and acknowledgement perhaps of people's uh, psychological foibles rather than just letting all this you know flannel all these ridiculous arguments sort of uh, define the discourse which is unhelpful across the board really yeah i guess we like um the same like people in the south it's just so not alien but it's not immediate is it because you know um we've said before that south wales it almost feels like a, just a district of england just how anglicized it is so yeah it's just we, we spoke about this on the previous podcast about the welsh language and how the welsh language has been systematically othered mm. um and like I said, I thought it. You know, I know lo- so many people think it. It's like this is a fear of Welsh, spe- the Welsh language, a fear of Welsh speakers is like other. And this idea that, oh, you know, you know, during my PhD, I interviewed loads of people in Porthcawl, and they were like, oh, you know, there's Welsh speakers down West Wales or up North Wales, they hate this. Um, and there's something Nath said, a lot of it comes back to about identity and this idea that you know, there's a hierarchy of Welshness and this, yeah. Yeah. you know, this idea that, that, you know, so there's insecurity, basically. People say, oh, they think we're not really Welsh. They say we're not really Welsh. And it's just like, well... <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things that's been fostered by writers and stuff over the years. And I mean, you know, I, I moved to, you know, moved to Bangor. I played football for, you know, Nantlevale and Penagroyce, which is almost, you know, one of the most Welsh-speaking parts of the country. And hmm. you know, no one spoke, no one spoke English like in their day-to-day life because it's a community language. Hmm. Um, but you know, I didn't feel threatened. You know, I didn't, you know, did people did people didn't start speaking Welsh when I walked into a pub. Mm. Um, and people aren't any different. It's just pe- you people. Speak to you, do they? No, but, <laughs> but you know, it's important to note that that happens in Cardiff anyway. So it's nothing to do with the Welsh language, just like me. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, that that is the that's the context, isn't it? And that's the background. And and, and you said there are the, the most annoying thing. The most annoying thing is is that there is an interesting debate to be had because you know I think sometimes well you know if I have children I want to send to a Welsh medium school but then I think well I can't speak Welsh mm. so I understand that, except that it is a big deal for parents to send children to a Welsh medium school because they think well how can I help with the homework yeah and, but the problem is as you said here that we don't have that mature discussion about how we can overcome these obstacles how we can you know assuage parents fears about things like that because it's just all taken up with people saying oh Welsh speakers you know they're going to take over and we, you know we're not going to be able to speak English and stuff like that and, yeah, I mean, that's what's massively frustrating about an intervention, as we saw with The Guardian, because an uh, article in The Guardian is more likely to have an influence on the discourse and debate here than anything that appears in Wales Online, Western Mail, or, you know, the other outlets that we got. Um, and, you know, I think a sense as well in which, you know, we're sort of hardwired to listen to the uh, English liberal voice of reason. Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, it does set things back because, again, rather than discussing the minutiae, some of the details, you're back to square one. And, you know, that's the sort of thing I was, I guess, expressing on that tweet or the thread that I wrote was, you know, here we go, we've got to stop. You should have done the hand clap emojis, man. Like, <laughs> it would have got retweeted. That right signifies that something's really important if his hand. And then I would have said, thread. <laughs> this. <Yeah. laughs> Just this. Um, one of the things I don't understand is that, as you said, there's a, it, it's policy, right? So mm. if you're in a Welsh Labour Party and you're in these local branch meetings, whether it be in Tlangenic and Grangetown, you're kicking off. It is policy, isn't it? It's policy for everyone to have access to the Welsh language in the in the locality. Yeah. Um, and it is policy, you know, the million speakers. So how do they sort of? What's the power dynamic? How can you know? Yeah. How can they square this? Like, how can yeah. they basically sort of mug off national the national party and say, well, actually, we don't, yeah. we don't want to hear. So I think the power dynamic is really interesting, <clears throat> and not just in the context of Welsh medium education. And I suppose you can think about it in terms of the balance of power and where that power ultimately lies. Because in one way, you do want council involvement with education policy, because ultimately there should be an element of local democracy and you know to carry out things like um, uh, consultations, it's obviously, or in theory, it should be easier if you have people on the ground locally doing that sort of thing. But I mean, what we saw, and I think what happened in Llangenech is, if you have people who are interested in throwing things into the long grass or just trying to destroy them entirely. There are games that can be played or steps that can be taken to push things back indefinitely. And then on the side of the uh, Welsh Government, you don't perhaps have the powers or the ability to intervene sufficiently. I mean, Leighton Andrews in his time did put in a fairly robust framework for Welsh medium education. There are what we now call the Welsh Education Strategic Plans where councils, I think every second year, have to present a document showing the government how they're trying to implement the policy of expanding Welsh medium education. And they're called statutory documents, which would suggest that there's some sense of duty there, you know, that they're obliged to carry this through. <clears throat> but actually, if something gets in the way, as things currently stand, there's nothing the Minister of Education can really do to sort of step in and, and lay down the law. Uh, and as I say, that's what's happened with us in Grangetown. I mean, time and again, I was thinking, God, if only I could, uh, you know, force basically Hugh Lewis to step in here and take control. Um, in the way that obviously government has done, they've often put councils in special measures mm. for education generally when they haven't performed. And as I say, it's the balance of power because you do want local councillors to be able to express the uh, will or the, uh, you know, the, the views of local people. You do want people to be heard, but you also need to, I think, have the mechanisms that can be put in place when it has been recognised that, you know, you've reached some sort of um, hiatus or some sort of point where things are no longer going to go forward. And, you know, as I say, it maybe relates to other fields of policy. So, you know, think about the health and the health boards and the sense in which perhaps they're sort of arm's length in a certain way you know um, if you're a cynic you might ask well is there an element that ministers are more comfortable with not having these more extensive powers oh, absolutely. to sort of step in and actually say right we've got to do it this way well what you say in this in your article you said you know that there's welsh education strategic plans um you know and he said uh, in, in which council set out their commitments to welsh language education and meant to make the creation of schools statutory duty 
but it's, you say this provides no leverage for ensuring these plans are fulfilled or for ministerial intervention. Um, so you said, how credible is it for the government to put in place national policy and claim responsibility for any success when they're ready to lay the blame for policy failure at the door of councils and they're not willing to get involved? So it's, I mean, we see it all the time. We've seen it all the time at like national level disjunction between Welsh Labour Party, UK Labour Party, but it also happens between council mm. and Welsh government and stuff like that, doesn't it? Mm. And the other thing you said about was the Welsh language forums. Yeah, I suppose to act as watchdogs. Yeah, but you said that, you know they've got no real weight behind them. Or no, I mean what these forums are essentially meant to be is a sort of, as I understand them, a voluntary body where, um, like a militia. Yeah, <laughs> if only they were like a militia, that would have a very little <laughs> impact. Men, right? <laughs> <laughs> Although I do know know some members who, uh, yeah, are militia-like in their in their attitudes. Maybe that's part of the problem. But essentially, you're meant to have a, a group of people. Um, officials from the council, then with sort of community leaders or uh, people who are activists who get together on occasion to discuss how things are going in terms of uh, executing the Welsh Education Strategic Plan. But I mean, these things are far too easily sort of forgotten about or cancelled or, you know, people don't turn up. I mean, I was told that there are one or two examples of best practice you know, across, what is it, the 22 local authorities. I mean, I guess if you've got 22 of them, there's going to be at least one or two that work properly. But again, just in terms of that balance of power and ensuring policy actually is executed, um, you've got to ask some key questions, really. And as I say, it is a wider question about the way our democracy functions in, in Wales and, and accountability and so on. Um, the other thing you talked about was um, this is principle of informed demand. Oh, yeah. which dictates that council should plan bilingual education on the basis of interests expressed by parents. So you've got a problem with this idea of informed demand. Yeah, I mean, this is where some of the debate gets a little bit uh, philosophical, if you can bear with me, uh, in, in as much as, you know, in one sense, you have a policy that says, right, we want a million speakers, we want to double the amount of people who speak Welsh in the next three decades, which sort of suggests that the idea of the Welsh language is something that most people in Wales are on board with. People are happy to see it thrive. People want to see it thrive. There's a general will, if you like, or it's uh, what might be called a fixed point in our sort of political culture where across the political spectrum, people think, right, we need to, or we should be trying to expand uh, the numbers of Welsh speakers. And then on the other hand, in terms of actually executing policy, you're relying on what could be described as a sort of um, consumer based attitude you know we want to find out where the demand is and if we find that there's demand in these particular corners of Wales then we'll set up a school and to me that's putting things backwards in a sense if you have this bold policy statement this shared value across political parties that you know we should be doing what we can to expand Welsh education and then you're saying right in terms of actually putting it into practice we're not just going to say right we'll expand Welsh education where we can over the next 10, 15, 20 years, but we're going to rely on people to express this desire. You've got a fundamental tension there, I think, particularly when you consider how difficult it is to actually identify demand, you know, inform demand, what does that mean? Because as I was saying earlier, in terms of a lot of our communities, the awareness of what Welsh language education is about, um, people's sort of perceptions of it, 
it's very difficult to see how you're going to be able to identify demand where people are explicitly saying, yeah, we desperately need Welsh medium education. You will have a few. You will have people who are, you know, informed and have the time and the energy. But I mean, what's particularly frustrating, I think, is if you think about certain communities like ours in Greenstown and Butetown, more deprived communities, are you going to have people in these areas that are going to have time and the social capital to be able to think about, um, discuss, meet up, and push for mm. um, for, for uh, Welsh medium education? So I think you've got a tension there, and I think if you're saying that Welsh medium education is a thing that we largely agreed upon, you need to be more forthright and take a more proactive approach, if you like, and. Just the one example of how this plays out in Cardiff now is, you know, we're going to have a massive expansion. You've spoken about this on one of your other podcasts. There's obviously going to be a lot of schools that are going to be built over the coming years. Now, according to the principle of informed demand, you need to go out to these communities, have discussions, inform people about what Welsh medium education is, and then get some sort of response to say we want Welsh schools. Well, actually, the default position is there are no communities that exist there. We want to create new communities, build new schools. We'll just go with the uh, English medium schools because there's no community to actually express yeah. the informed yeah. demand for, for Welsh medium education. So yeah, that's a major stumbling block. And if you look at Cardiff Council, um, you know, if they're serious about helping the government strategy, and it's a, you know, it's a Welsh Labour Council, um, who should be on board with national strategy, what they need to be thinking about is, well, rather than, uh, you know, these sort of half-baked uh, questionnaires that are sometimes set out looking for this uh, demand, we need to be a bit more proactive and say, well, there are going to be a certain percentage of schools over the next, com- over the coming years that are going to be, you know, Welsh medium. Um, yeah, so it's a big test, it's a big test, and... Um, I saw today on Twitter that there's a new document from Cardiff Council uh, about their vision for Cardiff over the coming years. Did they live tweet it? uh, Well, somebody else live tweeted it and commented that there was no reference to Welsh medium education in the education section. So, uh, yeah, it sort of suggests that um, the attitudes and the aspirations that are there in central government are perhaps not filtering down or not... uh, always best represented at, at council level. Well, yeah, the interesting thing about demand is it, well, first, as you said, it's sort of almost a, a nebulous thing that's hard to measure. And when the default position is, you know, English language schools, as you said, it is very hard for people to create that racket almost for Welsh. It takes a lot of time. Um, you don't need to tell me that. <laughs> and the other thing is that demand is, you know, you can manipulate it. Well, that's um, it, yeah, yeah. You know, it's very easy to sort of throw a spanner in the works and stop it. Um, before I forget, shout out to Louise Tickle and Stephen Morris, uh, the Guardian Education correspondent, <laughs> right in the article. We're told we're anti-Welsh bigots and fascists uh, about the Tlangenic uh, debacle, which is easily the worst thing I've ever read. Not just on the, you know, not just on the, it's the worst thing I've ever read in the Guardian. You know, and I've read, you know, Polly Tony Collins, you know, um, <laughs> Owen Jones, like John Harris. Um, John Harris walking around, you know, getting working class people to be racist. This is worse than all those combined. Um, and what's it, I mean, not only do they just interview the anti sort of Welsh medium campaigners in 
uh, Llangenig. They don't draw on any of the other, like, huge sort of investigative work that was done by lo- local bloggers, campaigners, mm-hmm. that sort of dredged up the fact that um, the, the questionable views, should we say, of some of the people involved. Do um, one of them go by a different name as well? Well, yeah, one of them is Lady Michaela Beddoes, just used to pop, just pops up all the time, just spouting, you know, anti-immigrant drivel. Um, and so the interesting thing, they quoted this, so not only did they only interview one side, they said, we're told, so the article was, we're told, the article headline was, we're told we're anti-Welsh bigots and fascists. And the ironic thing is, of course, some of the leading people were actually exposed as being actual <laughs> fascists. So, yeah, they were. Um, but if they'd done any research into that, they would have found that these people are, like, into the EDL, into Britain first and stuff like that. But, you know, um, but, I mean, it, it, for me, it comes almost back, it's so cynical, it comes back to this, like, the political economy of the media just like the Western Mail did it back and I said that's just clicks for the Guardian the outrage generated mm. ensured that that article sort of banged essentially and then it was like you know Rhiannon Coslet fair play to it did a you know Welsh media a Welsh speaking uh, a journalist at the Guardian did a sort of repost mm. but for them that's you know that's brilliant coverage it was traffic yeah and on that point really you shouldn't have been dignified with a repost I mean it was quite good what um Shannon Coslet broke, I thought it was quite measured and, you know, it did sort of put out uh, the positive aspects of Welsh medium education and bilingual education. But actually, I felt that it legitimised the original article by saying, oh, well, you know, this is one reason, uh, opinion, view yeah. on, on one opinion on, on the situation and this is a, a response, well... Uh, she's the right about but what, I mean, what, what, what this is ultimately is is sanctioned, in my opinion, is sanctioned bigotry, let's be honest. I mean, mm. and what I want to talk about now, here is some of the more philosophical stuff that you've written about, some of the stuff that's in, I mean, essentially this, I mean, people have a go at identity politics. I mean, I've been guilty of having a go at identity politics, like, you know, who cares about stuff like, you know, um, you know, stuff, you know, sexual identity, stuff like that. And it's, it's very ignorant of me in the past. And I've sort of... There's a huge driving factor for everything, though, isn't it? But, but there's, and, and the same as with the Welsh language. In the past, I've sort of been like, well, you know, who cares really about the mm-hmm. Welsh language and stuff like that and even to extent about Welsh identity something I've sort of ambivalent about to some degree but what you wrote in this you know Tlangenic article and other things it's like you know like one of the things you know it's a meme and it's like the the, the brain getting bigger and, and then it oh the Eric Wareheim explosion yeah um, <laughs> but tell us about the stuff you've written about you know firstly about you know the importance you know the importance of language mm-hmm. uh, but also like Interestingly, about you know, potentially, especially for people who are left wing and listen to this, you know, mm. the fact that within this an anglophone universe mm. and in a sort of capitalist world, the Welsh language can, and this is what Robert, uh, Robert Griffiths and Gareth Miles wrote in that pamphlet, is almost a, an untouched oasis of a potential area of resistance or mm. opposition. So, can you just tell us a bit more about your philosophical <coughs> takes on the Welsh language? Yeah, I mean, there's few points but I'll try and keep it brief I mean I think in the first place it's interesting how you think about and conceive of language and I think a lot of the time living in a state like the UK which is essentially monoglot um, where we don't have a particular respect for native languages let alone or other native languages let alone foreign languages there is an underlying assumption about the nature of language there I think um, which is sort of revealed when you'll get the response from people who say, you know, well, why do they bother speaking Welsh? They all speak English anyway. And that kind of suggests this view that what language is is basically just a set of 
symbols that we use to identify things in the world that are already there and that already have some sort of meaning. So it's called the designatory um, or designative view of language. It's just putting labels on stuff that's already there. Whereas the notion of language actually has more um, support for it these days is this notion that it's a sort of creative thing, that's a creative act and that actually when you're naming the things that are in your environment, when you're actually um, trying to understand it as part of a community, what you're actually doing is taking part in a constructive act. And so in the article, the way I put it very briefly is, you know, languages don't describe the world, languages create the world. And if you start at that point, then it's, I think, easier to get into the sort of viewpoint of language activists the world over, people who probably are bilingual, trilingual, and appreciate perhaps what it is to go from one language to the other. And it's not just changing, you know, uh, symbols and, and, and so forth. It's actually about changing a sort of view on the world. And I think that's really something that a lot of people, especially in England, struggle with. And it's not so much of a struggle for a lot of people on the continent in Europe because they're naturally sort of bilingual for whatever reason. So you're struggling against that sort of culture or that sort of view. And I think as soon as you start to appreciate language in that sense, you can start to see, well, maybe it does open up different ways of seeing the world. Obviously, languages have their own heritage, their own concepts, their own values to a, to a certain extent. And that's, I think, where you can get at this idea that actually the Welsh language and other minority languages can offer you perhaps a, a, a radical view on the world or a, or a view or a starting point at least that perhaps has not in a sense been overwhelmed by the Anglo-American neoliberal capitalist sort of the values that come with the English language um, in, in general. Yeah, I've kind of found that they've like um, uh, arguments against like different languages almost immediately come to like their economic worth or you know say like they're not useful to you know making money or you know like so there is that um, I have heard people say like what's the point because in terms of it's not used on like a global scale yeah then it has no value at all but like as you're saying you know there's the culture behind it mm. and really we were saying about because um, we didn't grow up speaking Welsh and that uh, you, f you find it a bit hard to like identify with it because yeah. it's not your immediate you know world so mm. when when someone uh, rightly kicks off about it you know it's, it's not just the language it's an attack it's you know their identity and they, you know their way of life their friends and family isn't it yeah 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 it carries so much baggage with it in a, in a way and I think as you say unless you perhaps been through the experience of learning another language, it's perhaps difficult to, uh, to appreciate, appreciate that. Yeah, I feel. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's not easy, is it? And I mean, that's the beauty of the sort of Welsh medium education that I was lucky enough to have, is you do it when you're three years old, and, you know, you absorb it like a sponge, and then it's with you uh, for the rest of your life. But it's really interesting in terms of, you were mentioning the sort of perhaps radical left-wing aspect of it. I mean, there were a couple of quotes in the article from an Iron Bevan, who's perhaps the last person you expect to be um, talking about the, you know, the cultural value of other views of the world, especially Welsh ones, given some of the sort of um, assumptions we've got about them as a politician. But he talks about the way in which, you know, other ways of thinking about the world, other languages um, can provide some sort of response to 
what he calls the universal greatness of capitalist society. And it's a theme that really is borne out as well in some of Raymond Williams' writings. Um, you know, he was a famous figure of the new left in, um, in Britain in the 50s and 60s, developed sort of Marxist thought along more cultural lines. And he was somebody who was from, you know, border country close to Abergavenny, wasn't well speaking, had perhaps, you know, elements of the language from having sung in school and so forth. But he sort of characterised the Welsh language in that way, that it is a potential space for resistance against the, you know, the cultural values, the, the oppression, if you like, of the, of the UK state and, and Anglo-American culture. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to be careful about it because obviously in some senses maintaining the language and ensuring that it is passed from one generation to the next is in some terms a conservative sort mm. of um, notion. And, you know, the thought of a couple of farmers on the hills in Mid Wales having a chat and smoking a pipe, being party to a revolutionary act, you know, uh, it's difficult to see that in a sense. But what I guess you're talking about is communities, cultures that in some sense do form a bulwark against the overarching greyness of, you know, capitalist or post-capitalist society and, and other ways of living. I mean, the analogy that Sharon Cosett spoke about, and I think is in my article as well, is this idea of biodiversity. <clears throat> There's, what, 7,000 languages in the world, and uh, the number is fast decreasing. But I think it is quite a nice way to think about languages, is that it represents biodiversity in the human sense. All these different... <coughs> sorry. Choke it up there. Oh, it? yeah, get emotional. Yeah, get emotional. Yeah, but the, you know, there's all these different ways of seeing the world, and God only knows the kind of world that we're living in now, the environmental disaster that we're heading towards, the, you know, the lack of values to challenge uh, neoliberal, you know, thinking. It all provides what. Raymond Williams talks about, you know, a resource of hope. And it's, so it's not just something to value because it's Welsh. It's not just something to value because it was what your mum spoke and, you know, what the bards were speaking back in the seventh century. It's something to value because it's a positive, progressive resource for the future and a, and a way of helping us to think and see the world in a different way. That would be the broad, sort of broad brush arguments, I guess. Stephen May, one of the guys we cited before, um sort of a social linguist who is now in the University of Wellington, I think. He's quite, he's aggressively scathing about what he calls, you know, Anglo-American culture. And um, and we see it all the time. It's almost a, and people's reaction when they hear, for example, someone speaking <coughs> another language on the bus, if, when they hear someone speaking, <coughs> you know, Welsh, I mean, in a supermarket or something like that. Um, it's, it, it is, it almost pierces the day-to-day yeah. the -day life and it's almost like <laughs> what on earth is going on there because people are so used to our way of life and our, like, and, and it is, I mean, in, in that sense, speaking Welsh is yeah. almost, as Raymond Williams would put it, like an oppositional yeah. uh, or at least an alternative culture because it does pierce uh, this commonsensical yeah, thing that everyone should speak Welsh. Just an anecdote on that, it's pretty amusing and in a way, but when I go to the local Tesco in Grangetown, you've got the automated checkout machines now, and I always make sure I press the, you know, Cymraeg on the machine, and then it sort of speaks back to me in this really loud voice, and my sort of 
gut reaction is like, shit, shh, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? And that probably says something about me personally, but I think it also speaks of the wider sort of language dynamic that we live in. Mm. And the sense that if you've got a machine in Tesco that actually speaks Welsh to you, like you see, it does cut across and it is a minor act of not, not resistance or rebellion, but it's out of the ordinary. And it's also like a conscious choice that you have to make to do it. And so all that kind of thing, it does, as a, as a Welsh speaker, perhaps it does on a daily basis make you conscious of how things are done normally, mm. you know, how the hegemony operates, if you like, and what an effort it is sometimes actually just to do the small things to try and push back against it. What I think is interesting is that, I mean, again, you know, my own cards on the table, I've tried to learn Welsh, um, I failed, you know, it's not something I've ever been particularly sort of passionate about but what strikes me of the whole thing and the Guardian article in particular and people's and what Stephen May talks about is that people's sort of views of the Welsh language is a complete refusal to empathise with other people basically the standpoint of other people so it's all it's so self-centred like me, me, me like they can speak English you know, and it's all about my own experience you know of like oh you know I feel uncomfortable people speaking Welsh and it's going to affect me and things like that there's absolutely no consideration of you know the experience of Welsh speak, actual Welsh mm. speakers. Is is a genuine assumption that people are doing it to be awkward or to yeah. upset people, or, or you know, and it's just regardless of you know if you can't speak Welsh, it, it's just if you're sort of a liberal left person, it's <coughs> just treating a minority culture which is under threat with the same respect you would hopefully afford it to when you were any in any other country, and it's almost mm. as, and a lot of that, as you said, who is is about. A lack of travel within Wales and the fact that people firstly generally don't generally don't understand that there are communities where Welsh is the, the first language I mean people um, so I interviewed a lot of Welsh speakers who lived in Porthcawl doing my PhD which is on Porthcawl and they said about how they speak Welsh in the supermarket in Porthcawl people just stare at them like they've got two heads and it's a horrible dislocating experience because it's like you know you're out of place basically and that's not a nice experience for Welsh speakers to go through mm. um, but it's it's just this, it's it, and it it is this assumption that people don't actually speak Welsh. People don't actually speak Welsh in their day to day life. So it's almost like, well, they don't need it. Um, but it's just it's just <coughs> it's just the like, way I would see it. It's just, it's just not being a dick. Just respect mm. the yeah. respect the fact that people have got a, a, a culture and a language, and it's it's part an integral part of people's identity, and it's like part of their life world. Just mm. respect that. Like it's uh, mm. I don't see what the problem is. And you and what the other thing you've talked about is an overlap. I think with with sort of anti-Welsh language stuff and the general sort of bigotry which is sort of coming to the the forefront in sort of post-Brexit Wales and post-Brexit UK. Mm. So what do you make about all that? Yeah, I mean, it makes it just a whole lot easier, doesn't it, for um, certain characters um, to purvey these ideas to use a sort of language that really is not what we're looking for in terms of a, a reasonable democratic discourse. And uh, it's something actually um, that Simon Brooks speaks about. Uh, hopefully you're going to have him on here pretty yeah, soon. And I can remember Simon talking in the Esteathod last year about that incident you referred to at the start of the session, that story in the Western Mail, mm. you know, attacking the Gorsedd and all that. And, you know, within a matter of days, Brooks was saying, this is Brexit talk. And, you know, he was immediately able to make these connections with the fact that what happens in terms of the discourse and discussion around Welsh ed- medium education, the Welsh language, is not immune to what's happening elsewhere. 
And as soon as you have this sort of, you know, inflammatory, you know, divisive discourse around the other, if you yeah. like, you can bet your bottom dollar at some point that that's gonna, you know, work its way into discussions in in, in Wales because of the historical baggage that we got, you know, and because of the way in which we have been divided in in certain ways over time. And uh, obviously what's quite different in the context of Wales and the Welsh language is you get figures like these journalists and, you know, institutions like The Guardian, in effect, actually piling in. And rather than sort of trying to see it from the side of the minority, they see it from the side of the, the majority. And, you know, you can't really discount the historical influence of liberalism in Britain, the way in which it's always been assimilatory, the way in which it actually attaches progressiveness with the English language. All of that is going on there. So you can sort of imagine these journals hmm. hearing about what's going on in Llangenech in the heart of darkness, thinking, God, these poor mites, you know, they've been oppressed by these natives who, you know, just want to force upon them this, you know, half-savage language. Um, what was it? Moribund monkey language, it was called in the Daily Mail not that long ago. <laughs> and so, you know, they may be thinking they're doing a good yeah. turn for the, for, the, uh, for the oppressed minority. And that all goes back, as I say, I think, to these historic ideas that you see in the liberalism of major figures like the John Stuart Mill, the most famous liberal political philosopher, perhaps in the world from the 19th century, uh, a Brit, and somebody who we still talk about and respect because of the stuff he'd say about free speech and toleration and all this. When he came to talking about minorities in Britain and in Europe, Scottish Highlanders, uh, Basques, half savage, uh, inferior races, and so for him, you know, it was better for us, the Welsh, to, in a sense, to be, you know, wiped off the face of the earth. We needed to be civilized. assimilated, civilised for our own good. And that strand in British liberalism runs very, very deep. There are other strands. Lord Acton is renowned as this guy who was much more sort of multicultural in his approach. But his side lost out of the argument. And so that's all coming through when you're hearing these voices from England, when you're hearing, you know, these... Um, journalists talk about uh, the way in which Welsh has been enforced on people in Wales. That's coming from these, you know, deep traditions of assimilatory liberalism that thinks Englishness or English language means progressivism. Welsh, you know, that's just from the Dark Ages. And so that all informs a contemporary debate. And of course, the most destructive thing in a way is ultimately people in Wales, who are perhaps not Welsh-speaking, but are from Wales, they adopt a lot of these ideas as well and use them as part of the debate that we're having today. Um, go on, sorry. I was going to say, it's, um, in terms of like the state of pressing, it's, it's a bit murky in terms, uh, in the sense that it will use, um, say, the Welsh language for its own ends, like you know, it was uh, used in World War II, and in order to get... Um, say everyone on board with the war effort they started you know broadcasting news in well in welsh and going further back is you know mm. you had ironically i think i'm right in saying this that the welsh language was thrived through the translation of the bible wasn't it which yeah. was a tool used for oppression mm. so yeah so it's just like super murky yeah yeah there's different sort of dynamics going on so yeah elizabeth the first you know actively supported the translation the Bible to push Protestantism but ultimately to secure her own place 
and that you know was, as you say is credited with sort of uh, ensuring the language lasted as a as a you know language of the people and then you know the, as you say there are these moments where the UK or the state shifts behind the language and supports it to its own end to its own ends but ultimately um, you know across time the tendency has been to try and uh, push it as far to the margins as, as possible because I was thinking of Britishness is just really an extension of Englishness isn't it like you were saying like the kind of uh, hegemony that you can be British but I will that'll be discussed in my book so yeah. I thought I'd plug it for you actually um, if only somebody was going to answer it in uh, 300 pages or less yeah for a special discount rate of uh, <laughs> um, well that's well, interesting enough he was sort of finished on a way of sort of plugging on our next show with Simon um, you know what Simon has said in the past is that you know once something has been quote unquote proven to be illiberal then it's fair game you know it's uh, you can attack it you know the mm. same is to be said if you look at you know the experiences of Muslims in the UK and in France uh, the veil isn't you know the hijab is an illiberal practice uh, and therefore it's fair game um, and I think there is a spectrum of bigotry and unfortunately you said you know that it is I'm not going to conflate the experiences of Welsh readers with, no. with Muslims no. uh, in the UK at all but there, there is it's on a sliding scale essentially yeah. um, right we're wrapping up now Dr. Hugh Williams, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Pleasure. Hugh, any shout-outs? A shout-out to my uh, mother-in-law, Ruth, I think, for allowing me to be here tonight by uh, providing my wife with a, <laughs> a helping hand. So, uh, diolch Ruth. What a man. <laughs> um, what a man. No, I don't like Hugh, what a man being a nice guy, giving a shout-out to his mother-in-law. Oh, yeah. Shout-out to his mother-in-law. Um, shout-out, Ruth. Nathan, shout-out. Um, can't think of anyone's Norman's Kurt Russell, greatest man on earth. Uh, I was going to give a shout out to Mark Cooper as well because he's just a good guy. Yeah. Oh, Nothing like specific, he was just like, oh, he's <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm not happy to join you with that. We like, we like you, Mark. Well, you know, just you're going to hang out sometime. We do like Mark. Um, how can, how can you not? A couple of shout outs for me. Um, firstly, we've been joined by an extra special guest in the background today, Brian Carroll. Thanks, Brian. Brian's a sort of a sound, sound guy, thanks. Sound engineer, like an audio visual whiz. If, if, if you can actually hear us speaking today, it's because of Brian, so yeah. thank you so much, Brian. We've heard your complaints. Um, yeah, we have the podcast. We've, ta- we've taken them on board and we've taken steps to change it, so thanks so much, Brian. A um, couple of things to note. Um, we tried to be a bit edgy on Twitter, um, and we've got a few complaints, so we were swearing too much. Um, that was down to the fact that we hired a, a work experience uh, <laughs> intern who we let on the Twitter account. Um, and bad language is obviously goes against the whole ethos of the Dare Station radio show and you we, know, we found out with our fired, HR department we fired that um, he's no longer with yeah um, so apologies I mean we're giving a bad work in school it's one of the things I love about Wales you know like they try to do it's like anti-establishment podcast <laughs> and we get like messages really nice messages saying like you know please keep the language for a minute so <laughs> I appreciate you we've taken it I listen to Chapel Trap House and it's so amazing and then I think you know they're swearing and then I think well you know my parents listen to this so I don't want to swear so um, uh, you're just apologies. trying to be cool like the big guys yeah you? apologies we yeah we basically you know uh, the work experience child got uh, carried away with a bad language and we have uh, was it PG12 you can't say the F word or the C word no, um, but we will take our tops off on this podcast <laughs> um, so apologies shout out to my grandmother it's a uh, 90s Probably like 94. Wow. Oh, no. Is that the grandma I met? 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So, I give a shout out to you. Uh, have a birthday. Um, keep tuning in. Uh, keep promoting us. Uh, basically, basically, I mean, we need people to keep retweeting their station radio because I mean, um, I think we sort of get we we've got a, a good core of followers. I think who are loyal and fantastic, and we love you all. We need to start sort of basically reaching out to people who you know who wouldn't listen to the podcast basically. Um, so if, if you guys are listening, keep retweeting, keep telling people, you know, if you say, well, if you're interested in this, then you might like these guys. And Maybe whatever. I kind of put in a comment, like, oh, you look intelligent. Maybe you would look. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, you look like this. Whoa, this is that a new t-shirt? This, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, this podcast got Welsh politics. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I will see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah, bye. What a day. <laughs> I tapped into the power. Tell me about it. There I was, an ordinary mom. Then I slid into my computer chair, and with a few clicks of my mouse, I became a mom on the net with the world at my fingertips. How does anyone have time to have fun? Melody, you made it. I had to go to the library to copy reference material for Nikki's report on New Zealand, and that took forever. Then I went to the bookstore to get a cookbook of low-fat recipes for that party that I might go to with George Cooper on Saturday. And of course, the book was sold out, so now I get to drive back there on Thursday. I had to drive to my sister's and drop off a poem. She wants it for her second graders tomorrow. Melanie, then, are you on the internet? Isn't that for techno geeks with spreadsheets? Oh, Mel, you need the power. We're moms on the net. We became Moms on the Net because there are so many resources available on the internet for moms and their families. The net is exciting. So when it's time for the real action, we surf. Surf the net. Learn with us as we ride the wave of information called the internet. Okay, so what the heck's the net? www.this and www.that. Let's www.explain it. Net etiquette, or netiquette, dictates that we do not type in all capital letters because the receiver interprets this as shouting. Don't fear the computer mouse in your house. Take charge and tap into the power. Oh, wow. Delivery for Trish and Deb. Oh, where are they from? Where are they from? Let's take a look. Mm. The card says www.roses.com thanks M. M? Melanie! What do you know about the internet? You know, I think a man could probably do it. Definitely. <laughs> Come visit our website. Isn't that for techno geeks with spreadsheets?